Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. And again, welcome to The Grove. My name is Stephen. And if you are joining us for the first time or first time back in a while, we are in the middle of a sermon series this fall, all on the book of Acts. And so a couple of weeks ago, we kicked off this series. We have been reading along through the book of Acts, preaching and teaching along the book of Acts. And really, the whole point of this series is to remind us what happened in the very beginning with the early church. It's not just a history lesson, but we think what's true then is still true today. And this whole kind of the whole thrust of the book of Acts is based on one verse out of the first chapter. It's verse eight. Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven. He's leaving his disciples and followers some parting instructions. And he kind of gives them kind of a clue as to what's about to happen in the world and what's about to happen in their world. And so what he says to them is, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and give you power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then from that point on in the story, what follows is exactly what Jesus said would happen. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. We read about that in Acts 2. There was this incredible scene at Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit came down, and and then it kind of sent the disciples outward to preach and to teach and to serve other people in the name of Jesus. And, and so this is kind of where we are in the story as their witness begins to spread. Now, if you were here with us last Sunday, man, what a great morning it was. I still haven't kind of gotten over and kind of gathered myself together from last Sunday. If you missed last Sunday, we had the men of Nehemiah here, which is an organization that rehabilitates men. They're based in South Dallas, and they came, and their choir sang with us and led us in worship. And what we had towards the end of the morning was a couple of testimonies, a couple of witnesses about what God had been doing in their life. And these were really, really powerful stories. If you missed last Sunday, you can go back and check out the sermon online. We have their, their testimonies and witnesses as a part of the message. But it is so powerful when people stand up and boldly proclaim what they have seen, heard, and experienced about what God is doing in their life. And that's really what it means to be a witness, to give testimony to. It's no different than kind of the, the legal term that we use when you call a witness to the stand. You're inviting them to come down to share on behalf of something, to testify to something, to kind of lend their experience, their observations, what they've heard to this kind of larger case that you're trying to make. And this is what Jesus calls his followers to be, his witnesses in the world. Not just then. Because what's true then is still true today. Jesus invites all of us to participate in that witness, to give account of what we've seen, what we've heard, and what we experience with the way that God is at work in the world and God is at work in our world. And so as we're continuing through this story of the book of Acts, what we see happen is as the followers of Jesus are continuing to be witnesses in the world, uh, it's met with a little opposition. And we saw that last week where Peter and John were brought before this council because of some of the things that they were doing on behalf of Jesus. Um, they're kind of questioned and accused of kind of spreading misinformation. And we ended last week with this idea that we have to be bold in our witness. They say that we can't keep from being quiet about what we've seen and heard. Well, what we see happen is that this continues to be the trend through those first 
couple of months and years with the early church as they are continuing to share, continuing to demonstrate God's love and goodness to everyone. And so the story that we're looking at today starts in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. If you've got your phones or Bibles with you, you can jump in. I'm going to paraphrase a lot of it just for the sake of brevity this morning. Um, But it's one of the more powerful stories in the book of Acts. And if you kind of look at how much time or how much kind of how much length of writing is attributed to this particular anecdote and story, it's one of the longer accounts, if not the longest account in all of the book of Acts, which should tell us as readers that it was really, really important that they you know, there was an economy of words when they wrote these scrolls. They only had, you know, 35 feet worth of scrolls. And so they had to choose what they included and what they left out. And so when something is given a lot of airtime, it means it's really important. And so the story we're looking at today is the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. And if you're not familiar with this story, what happens is uh, the disciples are spending a lot of time teaching people, but they recognize that there are a lot of needs in the larger church community, particularly to those who are vulnerable, the vulnerable population, the women and the children, the disenfranchised. And so what they recognize is they don't have enough time to preach and to teach and to take care of the needs and the people around them. But they recognize it's important to take care of the needs. And so what they did is they kind of took a a kind of a, a census and a poll to get some volunteers. It's no different than what we do here at church. It's like, listen, This isn't just about what Allie and I and some of the other team can do on our own. You're not paying us to be ministers on your behalf. That's not how this works. This is kind of an all-skate. We are all in this together. And so they asked for volunteers who would help partake in and participate in the mission. And so they get a couple of people, and they choose Stephen as one of these seven people to make sure that food, money, clothing, whatever is needed is distributed to all of the people in that first community. And what it says is Stephen was really good at it. He was really effective in the way that he cared for people, the way that he served people, that he was filled with grace and power. Not only was he doing a lot of good things, not only was his life witnessing to Jesus, but he was kind of spreading the word. He was talking about the why behind what he was doing. He was sharing about how important it is for people to recognize that Jesus is Lord. Well, just like we saw a couple of chapters before with Peter and John, this, this upsets people. And so what we see happen is kind of the Jewish religious leaders, they kind of start a, kind of a, a smear campaign against Stephen. And they start to spread misinformation, and it kind of angers some of the, kind of the leaders. And so they bring Stephen into kind of this court scene, this trial. And what happens is they kind of pay off some people to give false testimony, to be false witnesses against what Stephen is doing. And so they kind of set up this kind of this fake trial that they throw Stephen before and they accuse him of kind of um, speaking ill against kind of the covenant and the law and Moses and, and, the, and the church religious system. And so what we see is Stephen kind of in response to that start to share his witness, start to give testimony to an account of not only what God is doing in his life, but what God is doing in the world. And this is kind of makes up the bulk and the entirety of chapter 7. And what Stephen does is he goes through the history of the way that God has been at work in the world. He starts with Abraham, and he moves into Moses, and then he moves into the prophets, and then he gets to Jesus. And at the end of it, 
what you see Stephen do is he, inv- he kind of baits these leaders in. This is kind of a form of kind of a, a legal retort or response. What he does is he builds a case where he would have everybody who's listening, his accusers, nodding in agreement with his line of thinking and rationale. And then he kind of does this hard pivot at the end and turns it all and accuses his accusers in response. And so this is what we see at the end of chapter 7 in verse 51. Stephen has just talked about the ways that God has been at work in the world. And then the conclusion of all of this is, you people, you leaders, you have missed the point this whole time. Not only has God been present and at work in the world, but you have continually missed him. And the people who missed him back in the day... You are ancestors of them. You're from this long lineage of people who always fail to recognize what God was doing in the world, and it's still true today. You fail to recognize the way God is at work in the world. And so Stephen gives this account and this witness, and this is what he says. Now, all of the criticism, all of the critique that he uses against the religious leaders, he borrows from previous scripture in the Hebrew scripture. So they're familiar with these words. They're familiar with this language. He's using kind of their own arguments against them. That's what he's doing. So he says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in both heart and ears, you are forever opposing the Holy Spirit just as your ancestors used to do. Now, you can imagine, if you're already irritated at what the followers of Jesus are doing in Jerusalem, the way that they're kind of chafing up against the way that you like things done. They're starting to spread kind of word about this man named Jesus who they claim was killed and then resurrected again and who is the son of God. And you disagree with that and you want them to stop and to be quiet when you bring them before you in a trial and then they respond to you by saying, listen, you're the one at fault. You're the one who has missed the way that God has been at work in the world this entire time. You can imagine that that doesn't go over favorably. And so, as many of you know, what they do is they bum rush him, they grab him, they drag him outside the the walls of the city, and they all pick up a bunch of rocks and children earmuff it, and then they start playing dodgeball, basically is what they do. And this is the way that they kind of carry out an execution of Stephen, based on his witness, based on the thing that he is saying about the way that God is at work in the world and the way that he has experienced God at work in his world. And this creates a pivot. This creates a shift in the overall sentiment and the overall climate of kind of the opinion of Christians in Jerusalem. And so what we see in the very next verse in chapter 8 is this. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. Now, thus far, everything has gone as Jesus promised his followers that it would. That the Holy Spirit would come upon you. And you would receive power to become his witnesses in Jerusalem. And then where next? In Judea and Samaria. And this is the shift that we see happen in the book of Acts, starting in the first verse of the eighth chapter. This kind of persecution scatters all of the followers. And this scattering has the effect of extending the reach and the expansion of where the message of Jesus is testified to, where it's witnessed to. And so this is the story of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. Now, I think what is so fun, powerful 
about this description martyr is in Greek, it is just another word for witness. And I think that's the point that I want us to pay attention to today. Is because if you look at the story and the account of Stephen coming before the trial, Luke writes it, the author of Acts writes it in such a way that if you kind of place it parallel to the trial, the arrest, the interrogation of Jesus, you see these incredible parallels all throughout this account. They're brought before on trumped up charges. In response to these charges, there isn't kind of an argument, but there's this acknowledgement of the way that God's been at work in the world. And then what you see at the end of both of their accounts and lives is this acknowledgement that God forgive them for what they're doing. They don't recognize the sin that they are committing by killing me. And then they both say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so it's not an accident. Luke wrote Luke, and Luke also wrote Acts. And so I think the point of Stephen's story, which is what's true throughout the book of Acts, is that when we follow Jesus, it often leads where Jesus' life went. See, I think there's a misnomer in the Christian faith that being a Christian makes your life easier. That if you just believe in Jesus, that then that signifies the shift for everything to just be rainbows and butterflies the rest of your life. That's just not true. We know this. In addition just to the natural challenges and difficulties that come across our way in life, being a witness of Jesus actually in many ways makes your life harder. And so Luke's trying to tell us that, listen, in the same way that Stephen's life mirrors the life and ultimately the death of Jesus, so too will those who follow Jesus. There's an inevitability to being a follower of Jesus, to being a witness of Jesus, that it will cost you something, oftentimes your life. Now for us in the 21st century, it may not literally mean our actual life. There are Christians in the world today who that is still what it means. There's still a persecution of Christians that started in Acts chapter 8 that continues to this day. But for many of us, we experience persecution in a different way. And I think that's what I find so powerful about the certain depiction of the martyrdom and the stoning of Stephen uh, in a painting that I came across this week as I was kind of preparing for this message. This is painted by Rembrandt in the 17th century. This is his first known work. And what is so, I think, powerful about this depiction, not only the juxtaposition of light and dark and some of the themes that I picked up in my one semester of art history in college, but uh, not only is this Rembrandt's first work, but it's also believed to be his first known self-portrait. Now, this is where, this is kind of like where's Waldo. If you see the guy in the toga, right underneath his left armpit is a face kind of turned away, seems like maybe in disgust. This is believed to be the face of Rembrandt. Now, this does not come from art history. This is just my own conjecture. What I notice when I look at this is Rembrandt doesn't paint himself up on the hill, looking onward. The guy at the top of the hill, seated with all the coats in his lap. If you read, continue it through, The the account of Stephen, that's actually Saul, who will be converted later to Paul. That's who Rembrandt paints up there with the coats on his lap. Rembrandt doesn't paint himself as a non-participating onlooker. He also doesn't paint himself seemingly as someone who is participating in the stoning of Stephen. But 
So there's kind of this middle ground as to what perhaps Rembrandt might be suggesting with his inclusion in this painting. And for me, at least, the connection that I want to make is the one that I think Luke tries to make in the writing of this story. When you follow Jesus, it leads to where Jesus' life went. There's no way to not find yourself at some point risking your own life, facing persecution of some sort for your faith. And for us, this looks a variety of different ways, but when you begin to follow Jesus in a way that gives witness to his work in your life, it'll cost you. It'll cost you friends. It'll cost you reputation. It might cost you in terms of your career. You may not be able to go along with the conventional norms of your industry or your company. You may say, no, that's not for me. I'm not going to cross those lines. I'm not going to step into that gray area. And for you, that's because of your faith. Your faith draws boundaries and restrictions on the things you can or can't do. Your faith oftentimes makes you to make choices about kind of the trajectory of your life, the values that you hold, the people that you want to associate with or you're unwilling to associate with. It speaks into and causes you to think differently about how you spend your money, about how you spend your time, the things that you pursue or don't pursue. There are countless ways that our faith costs us. And I think sometimes this is kind of where the rubber meets the road, where we experience the friction as followers of Jesus, is because somewhere along the way we've been told that it's not supposed to be hard, that it's not supposed to be challenging, that it's all supposed to get easier from this point forward, and that's just not the case. So to bum you out this morning, <laughs> at some point, perhaps multiple points in your life, you're going to find yourself underneath somebody's armpit, experiencing persecution, experiencing pushback, experiencing criticism because of your faith. And I think the question for us is, will we continue to be a witness when that happens? Will we continue to give account to what we've seen and what we've heard and what we've experienced about the way that God is at work in the world and the way that God is at work in our world? I think that's the beautiful thing about the opportunity that we have this morning to participate in communion is not only do we get to participate in Christ's life and like we've seen this morning we participate in his death in many ways but also and most importantly we get to participate in his resurrection and so I'm glad that we get to celebrate communion together this morning which celebrates that fact so let me pray for us we'll invite Allie down to the table to lead us in the sacrament of communion gracious God we invite you into this space and into our lives. Lead us, encourage us, and equip us to be your witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.